DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's the author of several books, including Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we reflect on the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Her retreat, Heaven and Faith, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Anthony. It's great to be with you again, Chris. Today, we're doing the second prayer in in the seventh day of Heaven and Faith. In the second prayer, she's going to be talking about the purifying and transforming dimensions of contemplation. Be holy, for I am holy. It is the Lord who speaks. Whatever may be our way of life or the clothing we wear, Each of us must be the Holy One of God. Who then is the most holy? The one who is most loving, who gazes longest on God, and who most fully satisfies the desires of his gaze. How do we satisfy the desires of God's gaze? But by remaining simply and lovingly turn towards him so that he may reflect his own image as the sun reflects through a pure crystal. Let us make man in our own image and likeness. Such was the great desire in the heart of our God. Without the likeness which comes from grace, Eternal damnation awaits us. When God sees that we are prepared to receive His grace, His generous goodness is ready to give us the gift that will give us His likeness. Our aptitude for receiving His grace depends on the inner integrity with which we move towards Him. And then God bringing us his gifts, can give himself, imprint on us his likeness, forgive, and free us. The highest perfection in this life, says a pious author, consists in remaining so closely united to God that the soul, with all its faculties and its powers, is recollected in God, that its affections, united in the joy of love, find rest only in possession of the Creator. The image of God imprinted in the soul is formed by reason, memory, and will. 
As long as these faculties do not bear the perfect image of God, they do not resemble Him as on the day of creation. The form of the soul is God, who must imprint Himself there like a seal on wax, like the stamp on its object. Now this is not fully realized unless the intellect is completely enlightened by knowledge of God, the will captivated by love of the Supreme Good, and the memory fully absorbed in contemplation and enjoyment of eternal happiness. And as the glory of the blessed is nothing else than the perfect possession of this state, it is obvious that the initial possession of these blessings constitutes perfection in this life. To realize this ideal, we must keep recollected within ourselves, remain silently in God's presence, while the soul immerses itself, expands, becomes enkindled and melts in Him with an unlimited fullness. The kind of themes that we have in this are kind of the purification by which God gives us integrity, inner integrity, she calls it, and the transformation by which our being becomes filled with the life of God. We, we begin to experience in this life the blessedness the saints and angels know in heaven. It's a pretty powerful image of holiness that she's giving, and she's saying that this results from a contemplative prayer. And really, we know that the church, especially in that clarion call from Vatican II, has made that a universal call to holiness She's articulating this years before the church actually once again brings that forward as our goal. Yeah, it's interesting. Just before she writes this, Pope Leo XIII wrote an encyclical on the gift of the Holy Spirit, which where the church begins to talk about the universal call to holiness for the first time. And one of the things that's interesting to study or notice in church history is that normally before a new papal teaching, there is a mystic shortly before that papal pronouncement or shortly after it, which kind of confirms it. The Mm. mystic is someone who lives deep in prayer with God. And so the chair of Peter, you know, points the church to this truth over here. We're all called to holiness because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and he's the one who makes us holy. And then a mystic like Elizabeth of the Trinity, and I, I don't think she's the only one from this time in the late 19th century or early 20th century who mm-hmm. all of a sudden began to articulate what Leo Thirteenth had anticipated. And in articulating it, in a certain sense, as you're saying, as you're suggesting, anticipated the teaching that we find in in Vatican II, in particular Lumen Gentium, where it talks about the universal call to holiness. Lumen Gentium is the constitution on the church written by the Second Vatican Council Fathers, and an important section in that is that the, the whole church, everyone, is called to become saints. 
And Elizabeth, you're right. Elizabeth is saying that this is something that we're called to. But where she goes a little bit further or uh, deeper than the magisterial teaching is she's saying the pathway to this, if you want to realize holiness, you must make prayer a priority. Who then is the most holy? The one who is most loving, who gazes longest on God, and who most fully satisfies the desires of his gaze. How do we satisfy the desires of God's gaze? But by remaining simply and lovingly turned towards him so that he may reflect his own image as the sun reflects through a pure crystal. Now this to me is an intriguing truth that we find also in the writings of Therese of Lisieux but comes up here and, and that is we don't often think about God's desires. In fact, there would be some philosophers probably listening right now, uh, kind of scratching their head, saying, well, what do you mean, desires of God? God's unchanging. The desire would kind of denote from the standpoint of philosophy that God can undergo change. So you can't be meaning desire in the same way we mean human beings' desire. Mm -hmm. There's a truth to that. But in fact, though, it, it has been in our tradition from very ancient times, uh, and it is in the scriptures, that our God is a God who is passionate for us. There was a, a great patristic authority. He's known as Pseudo-Dionysius, or uh, Dennis the Aragripite. And uh, he speaks about the eternal eros of God, that God is filled with a yearning love that characterizes his life and that in the divine economy or in in salvation history, that love is revealed to and through us. And so what Elizabeth is saying in this passage, she's tapping into that tradition and she's saying the God we know, the God we cleave to by prayer, by contemplation, has these deep desires and the first thing, by just acknowledging that, it's a beautiful thing to think about in prayer. When we cleave to God in prayer, when we simply surrender to his presence, when we make the effort to be aware of his love that surrounds and envelops us, his love that burns inside us, when we do that, we become attentive to or sensitive to the deep movements of his heart. And, and you find this attentiveness in the writings of, of mystics like Elizabeth of the Trinity, but also Therese of Lisieux. Elizabeth of the Trinity, however, is quoting John of the Cross and his work, The Living Flame of Love. In other words, I guess what I'm saying is when you go into this kind of prayer where it's a gentle surrender to the love of God, where you trust in him, you cleave to his presence, one of the things you become privileged to know is how much his heart burns with love. When we understand, when we begin to know in our lives, in our hearts, how much his heart burns for love, that draws us to prayer all the more. Once you feel that in the depths of your heart, you don't want to stop praying. 
you want to be a lovingly attentive to the one who loves you so much. And that's what Elizabeth is capturing in this purifying. When we're attentive to how much God loves you, all of a sudden, the attractiveness of sin is there no more. The desire to do anything that might compromise your own inner integrity just loses its grip on your soul. You are inflamed with something better and deeper and more beautiful and more noble, more rich. You're inflamed with something far more human, far more magnificent than anything sin could give. One of the effects of contemplative prayer then, of this cleaving to God, is that we lose our attachments to sin. When God sees that we are prepared to receive His grace, His generous goodness is ready to give us the gift that will give us His likeness. Our aptitude for receiving His grace depends on the inner integrity with which we move towards Him. And then God, bringing us His gifts, can give Himself imprint on us his likeness, forgive, and free us. Isn't this a beautiful teaching? Oh, it's tremendous. We have to remember she's providing this teaching to her sister, who is a young mother, a young wife, who is living out in a very busy world, just trying to, even at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, there's still so much that she had to do every day to maintain the home. How could she attain this, what Elizabeth was uh, calling her to do? And yet it became possible, didn't it? Yeah, well, in, in fact, she, Margaret, her sister, does live these teachings out. and She becomes a very holy woman herself. Part of her ability to live these teachings out, as we're experiencing in this show together, is Elizabeth has a knack for presenting hard things in a very beautiful and compelling way, in a way that makes you want to go spend time in prayer. You know, I'm talking to you about Mm -hmm. this, and all I can think of the whole time is, boy, I can't wait till our interview's over. I want to go spend some time in prayer. It's exactly right. (laughs) Just to to take in and, and to enjoy what she's talking about. There's also a note here. She's not saying this to frighten us, but to make us soberly aware of another reality and that is she says that without the grace that comes from god damnation awaits us in other words this call to prayer this desire to pray in our hearts if we do not act on it if we put it off if we don't see it as an important thing to make a priority in our life It's not that we're pretty good people who will just kind of muddle through and at the end of the day, you know, God's going let bygones be bygones. It's not a situation where God doesn't take us seriously. God who aches for us and makes his loving heart present to us at this moment, right here and right now, he is expecting a response from us. He is waiting for it and he has a right to wait for it. And, and we do not have a right to put him off. If we do, we risk dehumanizing ourselves so much 
that we never become that which God has yearned for us to become from before eternity. And so do you see this teaching on contemplation is so very beautiful and Elizabeth is stirring her hearts to want to seek it. But Elizabeth is also in this very same passage warning us that if we don't make prayer a priority, we open ourselves up to grave danger. On the other hand, if we do make prayer a priority, and even if we're not that great at it, if we just cleave to the Lord with everything we got, uh, even though we're distracted with the kids and all the gazillion things that go on, but we still try to make prayer a, a priority in our lives, God, she says, will come to us with his gifts. Whatever we can give, God will take, and he is going to use that to give us gifts. And what do those gifts do in our lives? They make us like him. They let us enjoy his presence. And these gifts also forgive us of the lack of love, the hostility towards God that reigns in our hearts. We, we find forgiveness by what he gives us in prayer. And most of all, he gives us the gift of freedom. He frees us from the brokenness inside us so that that stuff inside us does not characterize who we are or how we live or how we relate to others. We are able to live out of a deeper, more vital principle than our own brokenness. And so what Elizabeth is saying is we are in a fight even as the Lord comes to us with his great love. Do not, do not ignore this invitation or this moment of grace. Recognize what is being offered you right here and right now and take advantage of this great gift. If you do not, it is very serious. But if you do, the freedom you yearn for, what you most want in life, the peace that you would like to have in your heart and in your household, in your home, it's just a decision away. God is waiting to lavish that on you. And all you need to do is make room and space for him in your heart. To realize this ideal, we must keep recollected within ourselves, remain silently in God's presence while the soul immerses itself, expands, becomes enkindled and melts in him with an unlimited fullness. This is an awesome thing to be telling a young mother. And yet the world wants us to turn away. And more often than not, we do. And we do live in the world. And one of the things about living in the world is that it's constantly trying to pull us away from prayer. And we need to make a conscious decision in our life. God has called us to live in the world, whether we're businessmen or, uh, or teachers or moms and dads or students or whatever our station, we're, here we are, we're in the world. In a world that's hostile to prayer, prayer the one thing that can free us and save us and let us know the forgiveness of God, the one thing that lets us know how much we're loved, the world's trying to pull us away from it. But if we make prayer a priority, in the second part of this prayer, especially Elizabeth is saying, the world won't really have a whole lot of power over us because we're going to be thinking differently what we remember, we're going to remember differently. And what we love, we're going to love in a whole other way. Because as we turn our hearts to God in prayer, as we cleave to him, he renews our mind, which isn't the same as being enlightened. He inflames our will. 
which isn't the same as making good choices. And he, and he transforms our memories. He fills our memories with hope. And that it's hope that makes all the difference in this world. It's what the world, precisely what it doesn't have and what it's so hungry for. And ironically, when we are living in the world but not of the world and we don't let the world pull us away from prayer and we and we turn our attention to God and we let God fill us with hope, we have the very thing that the world most needs. I was mentioning when I went through that list, there's a difference between an enlightened mind and a renewed mind. An enlightened mind has more information, more facts. It knows a technique or it knows something it didn't know before. And on the basis of that new knowledge or piece of information, it's supposed to be able to manage itself better in this world. Buddhism, in other words, promises enlightenment. This isn't what Christianity promises, although there are enlightening truths in Christianity. It's not simply an enlightened mind that St. Paul speaks about but a renewed mind. See, the, the enlightened mind still sees the world through eyes that are subject to death. And so it might gain some important information to know how to manage itself in a world that's subject to death a little bit better so that things are a little less painful and you can muddle through. But Christianity is not about muddling through. The renewed mind, this is the mind that sees the world with the resurrected eyes of Christ Jesus, sees the world transformed by his love. It sees possibilities where no one else in the world can see possibility. It finds hope when everybody else is already given up in despair. It never ceases to believe in the love of God because that love of God has conquered death. It's stronger than death. And there are no flood waters, no powerful forces strong enough to overcome that love. And when you have confidence and trust and your life is filled with that love and you see the world through that love, you're invincible in your hope. In your cleaving to God, you have something the world cannot take away from you. If I might, I'd like to tell you a beautiful story about someone that I know who's very dear to me. Just a couple weeks ago, my grandmother, uh, Verna Bradford, died. She was 98 years old. She had congestive heart failure. And unfortunately, her last few days, it was a very, very painful time for her. Family members were around her and supported her with prayer. And it was a beautiful thing. She died in the home that she had lived for 77 years. Quite a lady. Well, the story I want to tell you about her has to do with a visit I had with her several weeks ago around Christmas time. I remembered the story of St. Augustine and the death of his mother in Book 9 of the Confessions. And I remembered how St. Augustine, before his mother died, talked to his mother about heaven. And while they were talking about heaven, they both got caught up in prayer, and they, they kind of fell into mystical ecstasy, even as a, in their conversation with each other. What's so striking about that passage, it's, it's one of the few passages that I know in all of spiritual literature where mystical prayer happened right in the middle of a conversation. Uh, but that can happen uh, because mystical prayer contemplation is a gift that uh, God can just lavish upon us, capture us up, and 
when he wants to, how he wants to, for his own purposes. So I thought about that, and I thought about my grandmother was getting ready to come before the judgment seat of God, and, and so I thought I'd talk to her about heaven. And we talked a little bit, but she, she told me, she confessed, it's really hard for me to talk about heaven. And, and when she said that, I thought about Sainte Therese of Lisieux, who in her last several months of life also found it very hard to talk about heaven. It was one of the great spiritual trials that she had. And I said, well, Grandma, how are you able to pray? And my grandmother said, uh, to tell you the truth, Anthony, it's very, very difficult for me to pray. My grandmother was Baptist, and, and so she loved to study the scriptures. And I said, well, Grandma, are you, are you reading the scriptures? Or are you studying the scriptures? And she said, mm-hmm. it's too hard for me to study the scriptures anymore. I'm in too much pain, and it's too hard for me to breathe. And so I love to read the scriptures, but I, I just physically can't read the scriptures anymore. And I said, well, Grandma, then what do you do? And she said, well, I lay here and I think in my heart about him and I yearn to see his face. I yearn to see his face. And, and while I, I yearn to, to see his face, I remember a scripture passage. It's the only passage that goes through my, my heart these days. It goes through my heart over and over and over again. It's a passage from Romans chapter 5. And in this passage, St. Paul speaks about hope. Not only that, but we even boast of our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces endurance, and endurance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. This movement of contemplative prayer, while I can only judge from the fruits, is something that my grandmother enjoyed in the last days of her life, even as she was in the agony of a very difficult physical death. Her heart was raised in prayer, cleaving to God. Elizabeth, in this passage, when she talks about the transformation of our intellects and of our memories and of our will, saying that they become more and more like God, what God gives us in our prayer is his very self, his strength, and his power, so that come what come may, we can stand fast in him, and we are able to stand fast because we know when we gaze on him, no matter what else, whatever else befalls us, when we gaze on him, we have hope, and our hope will not disappoint us. Thank you so much, Anthony. Well, thank you, Chris. This has been a, a beautiful day to share with you. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission 
And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis.